0: Continue a study on 1 Corinthians. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table, uh, this is on page 956 in the Bibles in the Pews. I appreciated uh, the them singing um, living waters. That was at my request. I heard it at General Assembly, watching General Assembly last summer when Keith and Kristen Getty were leading the music. And Michael and I can't remember the CD that that's on. It's the mission songs. It's something like... Facing a Task Unfinished. What's that? Facing a Task Unfinished. Okay, Task Unfinished. Facing a Task Unfinished. If you don't have that, uh, every song on it is uh, excellent. Um, but Carrie we wanted Carrie to sing because this is her last Sunday to sing for us. She and Elliot, most of you know, have been here for over four years. As He's been the RUF campus minister at Mercer, and a school has come to an end, and they are trying to sell their house in order for to move to Starkville, Mississippi, where he will be the campus minister at Mississippi State University. But their house hadn't sold yet, so if somebody wants to bribe them or do something to get them to stay, you know, that's, uh, we've done everything we could do, but we've appreciated them singing uh, Elliot and uh, Carrie so many times. Um, okay, 1 Corinthians chapter eight, now, just a quick, quick reminder, Paul, the Apostle Paul was there 18 months, now he is in the city of Ephesus, and he is responding to a letter and a report and that included a lot of questions, ethical questions, about things back in the church in Corinth that they are asking about. So he's going to deal with one now. It's a brief chapter, it's only 13 verses, and it deals with a subject that you're liable to tune out to within the first three verses, but don't. The case, the, the topic appears to be eating meat sacrificed to idols. And you're thinking, well, this one's not too relevant to my life today, but it, the principles that he's going to teach them to live by apply to all of us. Okay? Hear God's word, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols... For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, "'Eat food as really offered to an idol, "'and their conscience being weak is defiled. "'Food will not commend us to God. "'We are no worse off if we do not eat "'and no better off if we do. "'But take care that this right of yours "'does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. "'For if someone sees you who have knowledge "'eating in an idol's temple, "'will he not be encouraged?' if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered idols. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray knowing that we need spiritual food to nourish our souls, and we ask that you would give that to us now. We thank you that Christ brings satisfaction, that he is living water, that if we drink of him, we'll never thirst again. And We pray in his name. Amen. Some time ago, I saw an interview on television with a uh, well-known movie star from days gone by. And I don't remember the question the interviewer asked her, but as they were talking, she made the comment. She said, I am not a bad person. I'm not a sinner. And I was standing in front of the television. I watched this, and I thought, well, that's kind of an unusual comment. And uh, it's it's an error in that the Bible says all of us have sinned and all short of the glory of God. But I know what she meant. She meant she was not a criminal. She meant she was not committing some kind of heinous crimes. And so in her mind, relative to those around her, she, you know, felt she was a good person. Now, as a Christian, as I mentioned, we know that all of us, all people are sinners. Romans says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what is sin? What is it? Now, this is how I explain it in our inquirer's class. I tell them in the class, and many of you have been through that, that the, that the word sin literally means miss the mark, to miss the mark. Now, that, we think, what does that have to do with the Bible? Well, in ancient times, if a person was, say, shooting an arrow or throwing a spear at a, like a bullseye, and they missed, they would say, I sinned. In other words, I missed the mark. I meant for it to land there, and it landed here. And so when the scriptures were written, uh, the biblical writers used that term for "miss the mark to, in a moral sense, that we sin against God. We miss God's standards, and we have those like in the Ten Commandments. For example, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Well, that's, that's the standard. That's the target. It's up here, and to the extent that you and I do not love him every second of every minute of every hour of every day, put him first, we miss the mark. And so it says we sin. So some of those commandments... Uh, tell us to do certain things remember the sabbath day to keep it holy Um, we are to do them and when we don't that that's called sins of omission and then when we do something we're told not to do you shall not steal and we steal then that's a sin of commission then we come to the new testament And Jesus Christ, in the longest sermon we have recorded that he preached, called the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, he took God's law, the standard, the bullseye, you might say, and he took a microscope to it. And he said, whereas they thought that you could only sin with your outward actions by what you did or did not do, he said, it's even what you think. It's even in your heart. He said, you've heard you shall not commit murder. And I thought, of course, right, You're not to take the life of another person, an innocent person. He said, but I say if you're, if you're so angry in your heart as to call this person an empty-headed fool, you've committed murder in your heart. Uh, adultery, you can commit adultery in your heart, he said. So Jesus didn't loosen up the law, so to speak. He intensified it. That, so that is what sin is. So we can sin with our, by what we do, what we don't do in our thoughts, with our words, Uh, so we have this problem of sin. I was with a a student one day. He was not a believer at that time. He became a believer about two days later, but I was telling him how uh, the gospel, the bad news, good news, and told him that the problem we have is sin. And he told me, he said, when I finished, I said, do you understand this? He said, I just don't see myself as a sinner. And I said, what are you doing this weekend? And he said he was going to a football game, a college game. And I said, perfect. I said, let's imagine at halftime, the announcer said, ladies and gentlemen, for your halftime entertainment, if you'll fix your attention on the video screen at the end of the stadium, we want to show you Ed Parker's thoughts for the past week. And he got a big smile on his face. I said, do you think at that point you might agree you're a sinner? I mean, I, I, if, I would be terrified if people could see my thoughts you know, everything that's passed through my mind like that so how do we know then if an action is sinful that's what paul is getting at in this chapter and there's really three ways and we learn this from the book of romans one is the action a violation of a clear biblical command and i mentioned the commandments like to steal or or to covet or or, or so forth to bear false witness is it, a, is it a violation of a clear biblical command? Second, will the action lead me into further temptation? That you know if I go to that place, wherever that place may be, then I know what's going to happen, and I will be tempted. Well, the sin may begin then when you decide to go to the place where you know what's going to happen once you're there. So is it a violation of a clear biblical principle, uh, command? Will, will it lead me to further temptation? And the third one, which we're getting ready to look at for a few moments here in, in 1 Corinthians 8, is will this cause a Christian brother or sister to, to stumble? That means will it lead another weaker Christian into sin? Now this is, this is based on the fact that we're, we're family. We're not just individuals. And we're part of a Christian family. We're adopted into his family when we become believers. So let's look at this. Let me tell you some about, in Corinth, some of what I've read that seems to be uh, correct, though there's ongoing study. What was the deal about meat offered to idols in the city of Corinth or elsewhere in the Roman Empire? Well, idolatry and pagan sacrifices permeated. All levels of Greek and Roman society. I mean, they had a god of war, they had a goddess of love, they had a god of travel, they had a goddess of justice, and on and on and on. And so giving food sacrifices, which were usually meat, which could only be purchased by people that had money, typically, poor people typically didn't have meat very often to eat. But giving food sacrifices was of great importance in regard to both of those beliefs. And so the meat offered on the pagan altars was usually divided into three portions. So here's this meat, here's this lamb, or here's this bull that was offered as a, as a sacrifice to one of the idols uh, I, that represented one of their gods or goddesses. One portion was burned up a second portion of the meat was given to the priest, and then a third was given to the person who was offering the sacrifice, who had paid for it. If the priest did not use the portion that was given to him, then it was taken to the meat market. And so a considerable amount of sacrificed meat ended up in the public market and on the tables of neighbors and friends or at pagan festivals. So it was almost impossible, so I've read, to be a believer who had any interaction with uh, unbelievers and, and Gentiles and avoid facing the possibility of eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. I mean, social occasions, weddings, uh, pagan worship of any sort, you could count on that there would be meat there and it had been sacrificed to some uh, idol. If a relative was getting married or a longtime friend was giving a banquet. And so some... New believers that were very sensitive to this refused to buy such meat. On the other hand, some of the Christians that had made some progress in their faith, maybe they had become believers when Paul first went there, and so now they're two or three years old in the the Christian faith. To them, it was irrelevant. I mean, they... Had the knowledge that well these pagan deities don't really exist, um, evil spirits cannot contaminate food, and so they felt we're mature, we're grounded in God's truth, we've got our theology straight, we've got the correct doctrine, and our consciences are clear. It's it's a no-brainer. It's 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 a it's a non-issue, and so this posed a dilemma, and they write to Paul about it. What do we do about those of us who have knowledge, and the weaker brother or sister and, and eating meat. So here are some principles that apply to them and us. I'm, going to give, I'm just going to fly over real high before we come to the Lord's table. Verses 1 to 3 basically tell us love builds up. It doesn't tear down. Love builds up. Verse 1, Paul had a way of taking a quotation that they knew, using it to debunk it. It's kind of like when somebody says, hey, you know what, absence makes the heart grow fonder. And you say, yeah, for somebody else. <laughs> you know, or they get a, uh, a job that's well done never need to be done again, right, unless it's mowing the yard. <laughs> you take their, their saying, and then you show that it's not true. And so his quotation there is, uh, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Apparently they had made that statement about themselves, the mature ones and he says yeah but this knowledge makes arrogant it puffs up what do you mean by that love love must come with knowledge not just knowledge itself isn't knowledge a good thing yes aren't we to pursue knowledge of course proverbs is filled with that that we should pursue knowledge didn't christ pray for the father to sanctify his followers in the truth and his word is truth yes he did So we need to learn, we need to have increasing knowledge. I feel the clock ticking. I am reading and listening to books more than I ever have in my whole life since getting out of graduate school. Francis Schaeffer said this, So He said, if you're committed to orthodoxy, in other words, if you're committed to the sound doctrine without love, that is legalism. But a commitment to love without orthodoxy is sentimentalism. That's mainly what we have in America today. Where just this generic or this kind of uh, view of love that changes with every situation—it doesn't matter what you think is true or not—and it's just kind of this sentimentality, and it's not not based on truth. Both of these, he said, are deadly. Orthodoxy without love, love without orthodoxy, and so we want truth and knowledge. But the goal—the goal—is that that knowledge will help us to grow in loving God, and in. Being a better neighbor, loving our neighbor better. So, knowledge, real knowledge, good knowledge, will help us love God more and love our neighbor better. But some time ago, I got in a discussion that turned into an argument with an atheist. And uh, during the, I, I don't I don't remember the details except that I got very angry i don't get angry a lot and my problem is when i do i hold it in and the other person doesn't know it and it has all sorts of internal problems your pastor has issues i've told you before and i just want to remind you but i knew inside i was churning and i knew it was sin and i later that day i told barbara what had happened i said i really sinned against god i don't think that person knew how angry i was so i don't think i sinned against him But he was telling me how foolish my ideas were, and I was telling him how foolish his ideas were, and in the course I just felt something just welling up inside. Like That's what Paul's talking about here. Knowledge in and of itself only makes arrogant. It's got to be accompanied with love. I took a course with Robbie Zacharias on uh, an online course about apologetics. The very first lesson with this great apologist is that love must be behind all of this. If you just want to learn about the Christian faith to win arguments, that's not what knowledge is about. It should be accompanied by love. So there were certain Corinthians that this whole issue was not a problem to them. They said, our theology's straight. We understand these idols don't even exist. Meat sacrifice to them is no different to us, just a piece of meat. Mm-hmm. Um, so he says, be careful, because knowledge without love it makes arrogance. Second principle in verses four to six, I won't reread it. There is but one God. And we don't pick up on it on first reading, but this is kind of sarcastic. When he says, We know that, uh, that there, uh, an idol has no real existence, it may be stone or metal or wood, but there's, there, there's no God behind it, like counterfeit money. It may seem real, but it isn't. And he uses some sarcasm in verse 5. There, there, there are many gods. Well, by definition, that can't be. If there's a god, there can't be many gods, right? If, if there's one overarching god that rules over all, how can there be others that rule over all? So he's being sarcastic. We know there are many gods, many lords. Um, verse 6, there is but one true god. And so there is but one God. First, love without knowledge, puffs, knowledge without love puffs up. There is but one God. And third, then, in verses 7 through 13, he says, be careful with your freedom. There are stronger believers. There are weaker believers. And it's not necessarily age-wise. I mean, you can have an 8-year-old that's a stronger, stronger in their faith than a 40-year-old. So there's a, there's a weak brother or sister, and there's a stronger brother or sister. And some are spiritual babies, and they've not had time or the opportunity to grow yet. So verse 7 says, however, not all possess this knowledge. They've not had time to learn sound doctrine. They've just come to trust Christ. This is all new to them. They've not thought through idolatry and meat sacrifice to idols. And so some new converts may not fully realize these truths. Their consciences are weak and defiled and If you lead them into these actions, it will bring with them a violation of their conscience. Verse 8, there's nothing inherently wrong then with eating, meat, sacrificed to idols. But the issue here, he now says, is the conscience of the weaker brother or sister. Now, what's important is we are part of a family. And as believers, since we live in an individualistic culture that just stresses individuals, we carry that attitude into the church. It's affected us all. And there, there's not the community atmosphere that, hey, I'm responsible for my Christian brother and my Christian sister. And so the, at first I thought, oh, brother, I'm going to be preaching 1 Corinthians 8 on the day we have the Lord's Supper. But the more I thought about it, I said, oh, that's perfect. This is the community meal. This is something we do individually and as a family, a Christian family, we come to the table. And so we view each other as brothers and sisters differently. I have an older sister, One, it was it, two children in, in our family. She's two years older than I am. Her name is Jan, and uh, we have a, a good relationship. She lives in Montgomery. She and her husband and her and two grown kids and grandkids that live in Birmingham, and they typically come over here at Thanksgiving. She's never here on a Sunday. They're, they're involved in a church in Montgomery, but so most of you have never met my sister. Uh, my sister was a straight-A student, unlike her younger brother. And I remember uh, in junior high school, we didn't have middle school for you younger kids. there way back right after the, uh, the earth's crust began to cool. They, they created these junior high schools, which was grades seven to nine, rather than middle school, which is grade six to eight. So I was a seventh grader and she was a ninth grader, and we, we went to this big uh, public junior high school. And we'd ride the bus home in the afternoons. And I was sitting on the back of the bus, and we were all the cool people, yeah, sat. And my sister got on, and it was full, and she had tears tears coming down her eyes. And uh, I and I said, what's wrong? And she said, uh, I, I failed a geometry test. And uh, I told you, she's a straight-A student. Now, I've never forgotten that scene. I can see right now. I can see where she was standing. I can see the look on her face. If anyone else on that bus had gotten on and tears were running down their face... <laughs> You think I would have cared? What happened? Failed the geometry test. Get over it. All right. I wouldn't have cared. But this is my sister. So I cared. I I hurt for her. I couldn't do anything about it. But I hurt for her. And I still remember that. And when we participate in things, Paul is saying you've got to be concerned about your weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. So what, what do we do? Well, how, what, what can go wrong? Well, we can lead them into sin. Now, this is where I want to define for you what it means to cause someone to stumble. It doesn't mean they don't like what you're doing. We have people in churches that they, they're professional stumblers. They like to tell you, I don't like that. I, I had a friend that went to pastor in, in West Virginia, and he showed up, and he had on a shirt at that time that had an emblem on it that showed that the shirt was expensive. And a man in the church came up and said, that's a such-and-such such shirt, that's expensive. You've sinned by wearing a shirt like that. He said, this shirt was a gift. And the man said, well, you should sell it and give the money away. That is not what Paul's talking about. The guy was not the weaker brother. Uh, he was just a legalistic hardhead. That's what he, he was. Uh, thank you, Lord, that I control my tongue. There, uh So here's how Marion Clark describes what happens. Here is strong, I'm going to quote, I'm going to read from his, I'm going to paraphrase this thing. Here's strong Christian Sam, and he is enthusiastic about his freedom in Christ to eat anything he wants to, to eat as he pleases. So he gladly accepts his boss's invitation to attend a religious feast at Diana's Temple. That was in Ephesus. While Sam joins in the festivities, weak Christian William walks by the open court and he sees Sam inside the temple enjoying the roasted meat which he knows has been sacrificed to Diana and that the meal itself is a religious rite in honor of her. William had been an ardent worshiper of Diana before following Jesus Christ. He had also connected that turning to Christ meant turning away from Diana worship. But here is a Christian whom he admires sitting at her banquet table. If that is what strong Christians do, then maybe he should do it. and maybe William should do it. So he drops in on the feast and eats some of the meat. But instead of feeling exhilarated by his new Christian freedom, he is seduced all over again by the lure of Diana worship. His conscience is too weak to prevent him from giving in to temptation. And that's pretty much the scene Paul describes there. And so when we get to verses 11 and 12, he says, If you are the stronger brother who has knowingly done this, by you, your weaker brother's faith has been destroyed. I did a double take at that word. Destroyed? Does that mean like he lost his salvation, like he's going to go to hell? No. The more I looked at it, the more I studied it, it means that his faith is wrecked. Is destroyed because of you, and you've caused him to wade back into paganism. You've created a dilemma in his life. And look how Paul refers to him this brother for whom Christ died. So, if Christ loved him enough to die for him, how can I just say, well, my knowledge tells me, and yeah, my theology is straight. I can can do what I want to do as long as it doesn't violate a clear principle of scripture or so forth i know there's no these gods and goddesses don't mean anything he's saying no you are responsible john calvin said the difference is for a person to say i don't really care about my brother i'm going to have my rights when christ attitude toward him was i give my life for him i die for him i give up my rights for him i lay down my life in order that i might save him and not save my own rights what a contrast in attitudes with our individualistic attitude today in verse 12 he says and you've wounded him that's the idea of a sword uh, wounding another person you sin against christ in doing so we say oh well you know so he's putting the burden on the stronger christians back in corinth you know you should defer to the weaker brother and resolve in verse 13 to build up your brother. This, again, I said it's not meeting the demands of the legalist. Now, what's legalism? Legalism comes up with human rules, which they say are God's rules, and they're typically outside of Scripture, and they stress human performance, and it leads to self-righteousness and pride. And we're to stand firm against that. As Galatians 5.1 says, Paul says, It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So, how do we apply this today in the closing moments? Paul says, I'm willing to give up anything in the interest of my brother, anything I can give up that will help him spiritually. So in deciding whether or not certain practices in our life should continue, uh, a good checklist might be, is the activity or habit necessary? Is it merely an extra that is not really important? The Bible says all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable, not all things are beneficial. I could do it and feel I have a green light, but maybe, maybe I shouldn't because it's not, it's not going to benefit anyone. Are we setting the right example for others, especially the weaker brothers and sisters? Hey, right off the bat, that's the children. I mean, we can throw them into the mix easily. What does your example and your words say to your children? And I'd urge you, don't criticize the church in front of your kids. Don't criticize me, not because I—just don't do it with your kids. You're influencing them. Don't let them hear you do stuff. In that sense, I'd say, it's the weaker brother. You don't want to let them think, all Christians do this. We all talk this way, or we gossip. Or there are are conversations I might have with some of the staff, like, like John Kinzer or others. That are of a critiquing nature about something, but I wouldn't have that conversation in front of a brand new Christian. I think it would disillusion them. When we have people come to serve on our administrative staff here at the church, several times I've looked at the person when they're in the interview process and said, "Look, where do you go to church?" And they'll tell me. I said, "Are you real strong in your faith? Yeah, I'm very committed." You know, working for a church can disillusion you because every once in a while, somebody can be mean and they'll say some things that they shouldn't and are you able to handle that and not get disillusioned in your faith because you're getting ready to get you're getting ready to come into the hot dog factory (laughs) The Jungle was that the name of that book Uh, so the point is I think with new believers we have to be sensitive Ah, I'm out of time I've got about four more pages but I'll I'll file them away in ten years from now when I can't remember anything. I'll, I'll just read it. Um, so we have freedom in Christ. We enjoy that freedom, and yet we also watch out for our weaker brothers and sisters to bring them along. So as we come to the Lord's table in just a moment, we come, we come as brothers and sisters in Christ. You say, I don't know that I am a brother or sister in Christ. Well, maybe you're still under God's condemnation. Maybe you, yet have not yet received Christ as your Savior, as the Redeemer that God offered, to put your trust in him uh, as your Savior. But you can do so even as we pray together now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ sacrificing himself for us, that through his perfect life that record can be applied to us, and through his substitutionary death he died to take the burden of sin and to pay for that on our behalf.